because if they get distracted, they'll either get themselves killed or their mates killed. So that's where officers have to stand back and give them the environment or the circumstances where they can do their job. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. The point, right? you were going to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top like of us. Like she did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. I'm Sharon Maskell-Dare and you're listening to Life on the Line in partnership with StoryWrite, empowering veterans one story at a time. In today's podcast, we meet Major James O'Hanlon, who served in the Australian Army for 23 years full-time and subsequently five years in the Army Reserve. He's had six deployments under his belt, including four to East Timor alone. We're conducting today's interview at Keswick Barracks in South Australia, and James is going to share with us his story of genuine enjoyment, passion and love of opportunity in the Australian Army and the camaraderie that he's experienced in the Royal Australian Infantry Corps. James, thanks very much for joining us on Life on the Line. Thank you, Sharon. It's a great pleasure to be able to talk today. So tell us a bit about how your career came about in terms of what made you want to join the Australian Army as a young man. I think I was just mad keen on the army ever since I was about six years old. I was always drawing soldiers, playing soldiers. I don't think there was any other option for my career based on what my parents said. Yeah, I was that kid that, you know, put mud on their face and stuck sticks in their hair and you know, all that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it was a pretty natural progression. I joined cadets when I was 13 in Sydney, New South Wales. Yeah, I guess from there, I just had one eye on service in the army and never had any distractions from that. You talk about six in your hair and mud on your face. I mean, talking to you today, you can't imagine that you'd have been that kind of person. You're so clean cut and your uniform is always perfectly ironed. Yeah, I think that's maybe the army sorted me out to a degree there. Yeah, I had a great, great childhood growing up sort of in a rural area in the Hawkesbury in New South Wales. And um, there was plenty of opportunity to get dirty. And, you know, I guess, like I said, I just really enjoyed that. I like being outdoors and even when I was a teenager, camping and shooting and things like that with my friends. So... I think the Army was a pretty natural fit for me. So tell us a bit more about your childhood because you grew up in the country, didn't you? Uh, near Windsor in the Hawkesbury Valley. And um, yeah, we only had like five acres, but we had state or government forest around us. And uh, you could go off as kids, my younger brother. He's 14 months younger than me. So um, yeah, we really, really just like getting out and sort of exploring the bush and doing all those things that you could do um, when you've got a bit of property. So. And my brother, um, he didn't continue on with military service, but um, he also joined the military when he was 17 at ADFA. So. so when having all those dreams and ambitions about joining the army yourself, what did it mean to you? What did it signify? I think there's two things. There's a, a strong history of service in my family from my grandfather who served in both world wars and my father who he enlisted in the Air Training Corps he was 17 at the end of the Second World War, but didn't go. But he was he was mad keen on being a pilot as well. So oh, I think I grew up with those stories. That was always part of it. And a strong interest. And I had a group of friends as well. Another guy, I'm sure I can drop names here, called Paul Rogers, who he sort of joined and 
we joined the army together and another guy called Phil Parker. So there was three of us exactly the same age that were all mad keen on the army. So that was our mission was to, once we finished school, join the army together. So yeah, I guess it was sort of yeah, family history and then the friends I had at the time. And when you first enlisted, because you went in as a soldier, didn't you? You weren't an officer in those days. I applied as an officer first up and they basically kicked me out and said, get some life experience when I was, uh, I think I was 18 and I wouldn't take no for an answer. So I said, well, if you're not going to take me as an officer, take me as a soldier and I'll, I'll do that anyway. So yeah, they, they ended up with me as a soldier for, for right or for wrong. And what do you remember about that whole recruitment process? Did it seem quite a straightforward process to go through or was there some challenges along the way? Not really. It was pretty easy. I think the recruitment was in Parramatta in Sydney. I remember the recruiting office there full of big, scary, it seemed at the time when I was like, oh, 68 kilos ringing wet of me and these massive sergeants and warrant officers with seemed like hands like hands like plates walking around. But yeah, it was, it was pretty straightforward. So um, yeah, I think I had a like a medical test, fitness, I think they checked my heart worked and it really wasn't too hard. We were sort of an unusual group because all of us knew we were going to go to infantry. So this occurred during, I think it was called the Great Infantry Drought of the early 90s, where there seemed to be infantry numbers had dropped off in the ranks. And so they were actively recruiting whole platoons at a time of infantry, which was unusual because normally you go to recruit training school, do you recruit training, and then you'd be selected for whatever corps you went to. Whereas we were what was called corps enlisted. And so the whole group of us from at that time from that intake, and actually I think there's three or four intakes at that time through Kapuka were all core enlisted infantry. So there was a big, they're trying to get a big surge of numbers. And when you got to Kapuka and had to do your initial training, what was that like? Was it the classic thing that you hear about still even today, you know, the face ripping, the being shouted at? Did all of that happen for you? Yeah, absolutely. That was right that was right in the that was right in the era of uh, a good face ripping and uh, I'm not sure if you call them splits anymore but you know if there was some misdemeanor occurred your uh your mattress with your your immaculately made bed would end up outside your window after you came back from pt just ridiculous stuff when you think about it i still remember and my wife laughs about it now is ironing pajamas so the the lines in the pajamas like exactly lined up the bottoms and the tops when you put them on your shelf and you know used a ruler to measure you know whatever it was a couple of centimeters between each pair of socks and I can't say I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy it at the time, but uh, I think as you get older, you see the the attention to detail and things that you need. I think that's that's what serves you serves you later on and gets you through. At times, I thought this is can I say bullshit? Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought this is bullshit, but um, yeah, I guess at the end of the day, you, you see why you did it, and you know the benefit of hindsight is it was you know it was effective training. It was good. So what did you enjoy most about that time? With all the different experience you had, what is your fondest memory? Definitely, I think the new friends I made and then I went on to serve with overseas after that. So as I said, we were, we were cornerless infantry, so I stayed with those guys right through um, the School of Infantry and then on to my first posting to 24 RAR. So, you know, I guess I really enjoyed, because I was a smoker in those days as well, um, I, enjoyed, I think I enjoyed having a cigarette at 11 o'clock at night, ironing my cams with everybody else and just uh, you know talking about the day's adventures um, and uh, yeah I guess what we got away with as well that the drill the uh, sorry the uh, section commanders and sergeants never found out about. Your first deployment came just a few months after you joined at the age of 20. You went to Rwanda so tell us about that because Rwanda has, has gone down in, in military history here in Australia as being a particularly challenging time in Australia's operational past. 
So tell us about your experience of being deployed there and, and what it meant for you. Yeah, sure. So I'd only got to two four hour out, which is my, as I said, my first battalion posting in March 1993. And then uh, I'd sort of been there, yeah, a bit over 12 months and Somalia was going on and uh, deployments, uh, as you may or may not have been aware, uh, were pretty scarce in those days. There'd been nothing really since Vietnam. So Somalia was the big deal. We had guys over there um, supporting uh, one RAR from 2-4. And then we thought, yeah, well, that'll, that'll be it. Um, and then, yeah, you know, words started breaching us that, you know, keep your ears pricked. Something's happening in a country called Rwanda, which none of us knew where it was. And we all kind of mapped and went, oh, that is a tiny little place. But I guess August, September 94, we heard, yeah, we're going to support the United Nations through sending a medical team there. They need an infantry protection company and a, I think it was a log company. Uh, and this, yeah, a logistics support element as well. And yeah, I was just uh, fortunate enough to be in, in Alpha Company 2-4 at the time. And we got the Guernsey because we, I think we'd won the Battalion Mill Skills Contest or something like that. So I can't, I can't remember, but um, we had a really great AC, Major McDay um, and, a, and a, an outstanding Sergeant Major, um, Gary Howard. Um, and yeah, we were a pretty sharp company, from what I recall. So I think that's why we got... Selected from the other companies in the battalion, yeah. So that was um, that was pretty exciting. So yeah, I was 20, 20 years old, and um, yeah, suddenly was going on a deployment overseas. I guess something everyone sort of dreams about, and you know, there was all that. There's all that obviously envy and jealousy from everyone else. Sort of, it's not only in the other companies in the uh, in the battalion, but throughout the brigade. You know, everyone was very conscious not to um, to get in trouble because this was you know this was a, a big deployment training and preparation, particularly around protecting medical elements, field hospitals, how we might set up food distribution points, how we might deal with riots or, or things like that. So I think I think our preparation was good, less, I guess, we weren't fully appraised of the situation on the ground uh, when we arrived. So tell us a bit more about that. What did you think you were going into when you found out you were going to Rwanda? So we knew it was a essentially a United Nations mission. It was essentially uh, a mandate. We'd been following the news. We knew that known there'd been I think Belgian and French peacekeepers had been been killed, and there was uh, you know ongoing tribal unrest and atrocities going on. I think we were we were given a, a pretty good picture of the problems in the country, and that we were supporting the UN's mandate by providing a medical company in support of the UN. So I think that was pretty well understood. I guess when we got on the ground, we didn't have that same certainty. And the only reason I say that is I remember we landed at Kigali in the middle of the night. To me, it seemed like a war zone at night. There was, you know, Tracer being fired in the air. Some genius decided for us to have our weapons packed separately in the cargo hold in trunks. So we're getting out in the middle of this war zone going, well, geez, a, a rifle would be handy about now. So like, you've never seen a hundred more eager soldiers opening trunks trying to get their weapons out and uh, get ammunition. Like, and that's one of those things you sort of laugh at. In hindsight, but it didn't seem particularly funny uh, at the time, particularly as, a, as a, a younger soldier who probably didn't have as good appreciation of the security on the ground. It was like, right, oh, this bullet's going off around here. Where's my rifle? We understood broadly what we were going to do, but I don't think, yeah, until we sort of got there, we, we knew exactly what the conditions were like. It sounds pretty terrifying. I mean, you were only 20 years old? Yeah, so terrifying is an interesting word. I, 
I don't think anyone found it terrifying because you're there with your mates. I think if you dropped, jumped off that plane by yourself, yeah, probably. Uh, but when you've got 100 other blokes you've trained with and you trust, I don't think it's terrifying is a word I'd use. I, we were sort of a bit concerned, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't, no, I certainly wouldn't use the word terrifying. It's just for many people, their first time out of the out of Australia. And I think it actually was mine. I hadn't been overseas before that. So I guess, yeah, my first experience overseas was basically hopping off a plane in a pretty dangerous sort of area. And how did the deployment play out? Because as you've described, there was intense ethnic violence between the Hutus and the Tutsis. It made international headlines. The perception external to what was going on is that it was just chaos. Was it chaos on the ground? I think the Australian government, for right or for wrong, we didn't sort of land in there until there was sort of, I wouldn't say it was calm on the ground. There was, you know, sporadic rifle and machine gun fire and it certainly wasn't a a combat area or, or, or anything like that but there's the evidence was widespread of you know sort of burnt cars and you know um dead body on the side of the road and yeah but there was also some you know there's also people going around daily business you know i I recall i think it was the airport or at least it was an early sort of patrol in trucks and there was uh still a lot of people out and about going you know fetching water or getting food or opening shops it wasn't particularly sort of what i'd call hectic you know you could sense something had just just occurred buildings that had been shot out and you know, something out of Beirut, just like you know, machine gun pock marks all over a lot of buildings. So you see there's been fighting and, and that sort of thing there. And this was your first experience, though, of being in a conflict zone? Yep. It seems a bit underwhelming at the time. But, I mean, that's like was first impressions when we got off the plane. And then I guess over the coming days and weeks, we sort of understood the gravity of what occurred and found more sort of evidence of atrocities and, you know, I guess the evil that had manifested itself there. And it's been well documented among some people that found themselves over there, particularly among some of the medical crews, how confronting and challenging that environment was. But how did you find it from your own personal perspective? It was confronting, particularly refugee camps where we'd go up, escort a medical, what you'd call, I guess, a close health platoon now. We'd go up and do clinics up around, oh, let me think now, I think it's Gick and Goro, up in the hills anyway. And we went, oh, Cabello, of course, um, through the massacre there. Quite confronting because you get presented cases, death gangs had been through there, so people would come out from hiding because they'd see the UN, so they'd present with these horrible wounds, you know, lacerations, cuts, traumatic amputations, yeah, children that were malnourished. Um, so that was pretty, that's pretty confronting as a 20-year-old. I'll tell you an interesting story. We had a... Uh, we had a surgical team in Kigali and we were often used as the stretcher bearers to bring people into the surgery. Uh, these are Australian surgeons. I think they might have been RAF. This young man presented with a, it was either a traumatic amputation of his foot from a machete or a machete wound on his leg, but it got gangrenous and they basically had to do an amputation above the knee. So we were, my mate, Ben Pullen and myself were uh, stretcher bearers and took him into the um, took him into the theatre and the doctor said, oh, do you want to stay and watch the procedure? And, uh, you know, sort of young and, oh, yeah, no worries, it'll be great. So they gave us surgical, those green surgical paper things to put on and masks and prepped him for surgery and knocked him out and that was all fine. And then so Ben and I were watching. Essentially, they had to remove this gangrenous matter from, I think they wanted to try and save the leg. So they basically got a thing. I still remember it looks like a, it looked like a, a watermelon scoop and they started basically gouging out this thing and that's that's the moment apparently I lost consciousness where I I fell I fell backwards slid down the floor and passed out and my mate Ben had to carry me out and uh, apparently it was uh, all sorts of funny for the uh, the surgical team this uh, these big tough infantrymen and but uh, yeah that was pretty that was about the limit of my stomach I think uh, that was pretty that was pretty horrible but yeah interesting side story. 
So great exposure, I think, but just such a variety of, of, of sickness and illness and everything from like malnutrition to dysentery to complicated wounds to who knows what diseases and that. Yeah, we never felt scared of the people. Like even though they might have, we, gee, this guy looks pretty sick. But we all, you know, I think I think it was a great thing about Australians is we always helped them and you know didn't shun them or you know made sure they got where they needed to go. In terms of the impacts on you personally, then I mean, it sounds like the way you're able to talk about it, that you recall it, that it wasn't overly traumatic. Whereas, I mean, clearly for some people exposed to that kind of experience in a conflict situation, they do find it very difficult to think about and remember. I think the individual determines the reaction they'll have to a circumstance. Um, Ten people can look at the same traumatic incident and reactions will vary from, yeah, whatever, to, oh, my God, that's the worst thing. I can't continue my life. That's how humans are. That's how we're built. Um, we, we react to different things differently as individuals. I guess I've been pretty fortunate that I can, I guess, assimilate what I've seen and sort of deal with that. Why do I put that down to? I had very good mates around me. We had a very, very tight section. We looked after each other. We saw everything together. And a couple of those guys have had have had issues over the years with post-traumatic stress. Um, but the majority of us haven't. We've sort of kept going. So I'm, I'm sort of I'm sort of interested in that because yeah, we're an eight-man section. I think there's probably six of us that are just kicking on with our lives and doing okay. So as far as I know, dealing with things like the Kigali Hospital when we first got there, there was the mortuary hadn't had power for. For weeks there was cadavers that had to be cleaned out there was bags of blood that had exploded everywhere we can only assume people had been killed there by the, the amount of blood and things there and we you know were burying people in the in the back garden of the hospital so now after you returned home from rwanda you then deployed to east timor but you didn't just deploy once you went four times so just tell us about how that came to be and and really what you witnessed over the course of those subsequent deployments that really perhaps taught you something else about about the role and particularly what was going on in in that part of the world at that time yeah so that was um yeah what we affectionately call world war timor in uh, 1999 again that was a pretty a pretty big deal, I think, for the Australian Defence Force, more so. Yeah, so I was a young section commander then in, in uh, two hour, hour My first big leadership role, I guess, I'd been a section commander for about two years on exercise, but this was a deployment, this is a different thing. So Timor, we could, I think, sort of on the nightly news how it sort of disintegrated with the Indonesian withdrawal and the militias basically looted and burned everything. And the Timorese certainly had a, a hard time of it over there. It was good to be able to get over there, sort of stabilise the place. There's a few sort of pretty busy days early on in Dili. Felt like the Benny Hill show sometimes, running around chasing militia, but eventually sort of stabilised Dili and then were able to spread out, particularly to our out, out to, the, to the borders. Real infantry patrolling and stuff like that and the stuff you sort of hope to do as a junior leader, leading patrols through the bush, looking for bad guys. It's pretty exciting. And then, um, yeah, as you say, another sort of three deployments. So that Second one was in 2001. So then I was, uh, yeah, Salt Pioneers. Um, I think we were at a place near Maliana. It was around Maliana, but there was a, the engineers had a big compound there. So um, Salt Pioneers were attached to engineers. And we did a lot of reconstruction and building. And, um, yeah, we did some great projects, built some, some kitchens and accommodation and stuff that the troops used, Australian troops used, and then basically gifted to the Timorese Defence Force after sort of, sort of we left. So... It's sort of nice to have a bit of a legacy or something to sort of help, I guess, the Timorese Defence Force. 
2003, went back with, was I then, a sergeant. Uh, so I was a company ops sergeant for Charlie Company 1RAR, and we were up in the hills. We had a patrol base up there as a company. Pretty benign tour. Everything had sort of settled down, a sort of a stabilisation force still. I remember the big issues of the day were smuggled sandalwood. Everything sort of militia and that had sort of calmed down. So I think headquarters were looking for things to keep us occupied. So, you know, smuggled sandalwood. Was, I remember drawing analysis maps of, you know, where, where there was smuggling of sandalwood. Why was sandalwood such a big deal? It's a finite resource. It takes ages to grow. It's quite valuable because sandalwood oil is a very precious commodity. And yeah, there were people harvesting sandalwood and just clearing the joint of it. Yeah, I think the Timorese were conscious they were losing a potential revenue there. So it became important for us to sort of protect it or help the Timorese protect that resource. That's sort of the one thing that stands out. And over the years that you were backwards and forwards to Timor, what did you witness though in terms of how that operation changed? Because clearly it must have been very different when you first got there compared to when you were there for the fourth time. Yeah, I guess the first one was just chasing the bad guys out. And then the second and third one was really supporting the Timorese with building infrastructure, supporting law and order, which they were still, I think, still struggling, particularly in 01 to 03 to build a, a credible police and, and defence force. So I think we were just sort of there to, to bolster them while they sort of got on their feet. So, yeah, I guess that was instructive because that was sort of that true sort of partnering and sharing information. And there, there are other UN countries, other UN countries were there as well with varying degrees of effectiveness. Um, but uh, no names, no pactual. But, yeah, it was, it was, it was sort of good to, good to be able to support these Timorese who, you know, had, had a lot of repression for a number of years from the Indonesians and were just trying to find their feet again. So, yeah, I found that particularly rewarding, I guess, in those trips. And what about your own development? How did you change as a soldier in that time? I guess as a leader, it was I became more thoughtful about the effect we were having. So my first trip was, you know, as I said, you know, it was the great opportunity as a section commander, you know, creeping through the jungle, finding militia and, and that sort of thing. Notwithstanding, most of them had fled by that stage, but it still felt good. Yeah, I, I guess um, those next couple of trips, yeah, I guess it was yeah more more for me thinking about what we were doing, coming up with better solutions. You know, I was drawing plans or trying to design something that was durable and would work and would would support what I'd been asked to do, um, as far as you know, building a kitchen or accommodation or things like that. And then the other trip as a sergeant, it was um, yeah, it was understanding understanding data, collecting data from patrols, putting it all together, and then helping the company commander understand the problems or the issues in that area of operations. So rather than being a, a practitioner, it was supporting the practitioners, which I think led me eventually, I guess, thinking about being an officer and things like that. So you mentioned becoming an officer. That was the next milestone for you, wasn't it? Because you got to the rank of warrant officer class two and then decided to switch across to officer stream. So why did you decide to do that? I'm typical of the seven-year itch. So when I'd done seven years as a corporal, I went, hmm, I'm sick of being infantry. I want to go to water transport. And thankfully, someone talked me out of that. So I stayed on infantry and went through promotion courses. And, and I'm glad, I'm absolutely glad I did. But I got my second seven-year itch, I think, when I was, yeah, as you say, a warrant officer, class two. And just before that, I was really fortunate to be posted to the Royal Military College as a sergeant instructor there. And I met some exceptional young officers, captains there. And they really shaped my thinking around opportunity within the Army, what else I could potentially be doing in the Army. 
I enjoyed being around them for right or for wrong. RMC pulls in, I think, the best of junior officers as the instructors, as captains. So you sort of spoilt there. You see the best the Army has to offer. And I thought, hmm, I could probably have a go of this. So I had a few conversations with them and they were, you know, very supportive. And yeah, and as I said, I think I was learning and growing in myself. You know, I probably had a bit more to offer and that, you know, I didn't just like executing the plan. I like thinking about developing the plan and building solutions. The people outside of the military listening to this podcast, can you explain perhaps a bit more though about the difference between being a soldier and being an officer and what it actually means for you in terms of your own mindset, the way you do business, the way you enact your profession to make that switch? And that's a really good question. I think when you boil it down, so I can speak from my experience, the, the infantry soldier or the rifleman at the the guy with the rifle at the end of the day, he's the, the blunt instrument of force. Give him a task, he'll go and do it, no questions asked. The officer's got to stand back from that, look at the application of force, understand how to apply it to the situation. Is it the right type of force for the problem? Is there another way of doing it? Can I utilise other assets so I can have the same effect? I think that's where officers should be thinking is um, the management of that application of force. I've heard that before and I'm sure other people have, but it's a management of violence that officers should be doing it, particularly in my thing. And then, you know, soldiers, they are the violence. So it's controlling that violence to get the right effect and whether you need more or less or more of it. What about the psychological shift? I mean, having been, as you say, at the blunt end and then being more at the, the thinking, the planning, the strategic intent end, what is the change you have to make psychologically? You, as you say, understanding those second and third order effects when you're a soldier, you just, you just do it because you're told to do it. As an officer, you have to think through the why you're doing it and is that a good option? What, what could possibly fall out of this as a consequence of taking this action? I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's not that, and it's not that soldiers don't think. Like it's exceptionally, exceptionally smart soldiers and, and junior NCOs and I'm constantly amazed by you know, their ingenuity and, and ability to get things done. But yeah, at the end of the day, they're the one that's got to you know, basically kick the door down and they need to be focused on kicking that door down, not about the other things around them. Because if they get distracted, they'll either get themselves killed or their mates killed. So that's where officers have to stand back and give them the environment or the circumstances where they can do their job. For you to make that shift then, did that require any kind of shift in identity or was it just very much a natural step for you? Definitely not. When you've done, you know, sort of 15 years as a soldier and a senior NCA, you have pretty, pretty particular mindsets and ideas on things. And um, certainly my first couple of years as a captain, I had to bite my tongue and walk away numerous times because my first reaction was as an NCA. And that's, as soon as an officer starts acting like an NCA, that's it, you've lost them. So that does take some sort of self-reflection and self-control because you often want to say things, but yeah, no, that's not my job. I'm just going to go and talk to CSM. He'll sort that out. That was difficult for the first couple of years, absolutely. But then soon after you had made that change and you'd settled into that role, you deployed to Afghanistan. So that must have been an incredible test for you to then enact this new identity as a captain in Afghanistan. So tell us a bit more about that. So I was really fortunate. I went to 1RAR, that was my first posting as a captain after I'd um, transferred from a warrant officer. And um, yeah, I was really fortunate. I was really supported by the officer's mess there. Um, I wasn't some strange, weird creature that put pips on. Uh, I think the term is Dargan they use now uh, <laughs> to talk about warrant officers. So I wasn't just a Dargan with pips. I was embraced by 1RAR as an officer, which is, I, to this day, I really um, I really appreciate the CO and, and officers there at the time. That could have been a lot harder than it was. And 
some of my contemporaries who have been who have as walked um yeah, haven't has been as well accepted but yeah as you said i was um pretty fortunate i did a tour to afghanistan with one RAR. i think i thought back to a lot of what those officers that had inspired me at rmc had been like had acted like and i think the behaviors they exhibited and um yeah, I think they set that really set me up in good stead for how I would act as an as an officer on operations. And yeah, it was totally, totally a different responsibility in that environment where we were. What were the main highlights of that particular deployment? Because it wasn't an easy time. It was 2009, 2010. There were a number of deaths. It must have been challenging as well as an opportunity. It was definitely an opportunity. So um, again, I was fortunate to be given a command. I was pretty self-autonomous. I was in a small patrol base halfway up the, the Chora Valley in Afghanistan called Patrol Base Kudus. My team had been split. We'd trained in Australia with 20 in my team. I had myself and a sergeant major, a lieutenant and 17 junior ranks. And we we're essentially a training team to train the Afghan army. And basically, once we got there, they said, now we're going to chop you in half and 10 will go to patrol base Buman, which was between Tarancott and my patrol base, and the other 10 of us would go to patrol base Kudus. Both teams, even though I had overall command, had a, a very good 2IC, Lieutenant Matt Cooper, who looked after the team in Buman and the uh, Afghan National Army soldiers down there, and I had a patrol base with a company minus up in Kudus. That was sort of hard. I had two teams. We only talked to each other over radio intermittently, so I had to trust Coops, and you definitely felt isolated in the middle of nowhere with an unknown quantity of Afghan National Army officers and soldiers, some who were very good, very passionate, some who were very, yeah, I guess, lazy and not very trustworthy. There were challenges in that. So challenges in maintaining command and leadership over the two groups, being conscious, you know, I only had 10 soldiers and, and NCOs there, being conscious not to be on them all the time, but always making sure we were setting the standard for the Afghan National Army. So a lot of it was about maintaining standards and giving the Afghans the best training we could. And then, yeah, there's, you know, all the usual, you know, personal admin issues and, you know, relationships breaking up and, you know, expectations from hire that, uh, you know, they didn't actually appreciate the situation on the ground sometimes. So, you know, there's a lot of frustrations in trying to explain that. But, you know, again, it was a really positive experience in, in the effect we had on the ground I had a very good JTAC. Yeah, Andrew Wegner. G'day, Wegs. He was an exceptional support to me. He was a captain as well and huge responsibility when we went out on patrol. He owned the, basically the airspace, the artillery, all our supporting effects if we got in contact. So it was good to have him as a peer there. Otherwise, I think it would have been a lot harder. They say, you know, command's lonely at the top. They would have been a lot lonelier without Wegs. Very interesting as a leader over there. Be very self-reliant by virtue of our geographical location. I had a very good boss who knew that I knew what I was doing and let me do what I needed to do. The only time actually my boss came down, we were out on patrol and uh, we'd stopped in an apple orchard. That was the time a couple of local $10 Taliban threw sort of two hand grenades in the middle of us. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, it was pretty exciting and the boss never came down again. But um, <laughs> it was pretty funny at the time. That taught me, trust your subordinates, you know, give them the mission, give them the resources, let them crack on and if they make a couple of mistakes, well, you know, that's okay, they've got to learn as well. 
You mentioned the Taliban attacking you in an apple orchard. So there was obviously a threat. I mean, tell us a bit more about that experience of threat, because when you are on ops, on operational service, it's easy to kind of forget. You become almost kind of immune to what the reality is of your situation. But were you conscious of the fact that you were very much in a war zone and that you had to look after your people? Absolutely. I mean, the main threat and the fear for us was... uh was IEDs. We were a ground-based call sign. We would leave our patrol base generally for up to a four hours was generally about the maximum patrol. Yeah, I guess we were out in a, you know, I'd call a sort of medium to high threat area. Two of my soldiers were victims of IEDs, one serious enough to be sent back to Australia and the other, he was pretty heavily shrapped up his back but um, came back after all, after a bit of surgery. There was a constant threat a lot of the hardcore Taliban had sort of moved on and out by that stage, but like I said, there was like what we call the $10 Taliban that, you know, was sort of part-time, laid IEDs, took pot shots at us. So it was very sort of sporadic. But yeah, the, like your adrenaline was up when you stepped out. And I think the main main worry was that, that IED threat, conscious that most of our casualties have been from IEDs. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of thought went into our patrols, not retracing routes, not doing the same thing, stepping off at different times, making it as difficult to pin us down as possible. I had two very capable sergeants with me, very capable sergeants, and they led patrols as well. I think that's what I enjoyed because as far as I know, I was the only omelette team leader that let my sergeants lead patrols out as well because I was sort of of that bent, well, you know, they're as well trained as a platoon commander and uh, where else are they going to get this experience? So they would lead patrols out. So we're to, you know, sort of one day on, two days off, so we'd share the patrolling responsibilities. Guys were nervous. We'd get uh, ICOM chatter all the time. So our interpreters would carry small walkie-talkies that would listen into the sort of Taliban frequencies, and you know you could hear them say, "Ah, oh, yes, the Australians are coming. They've left the patrol base." They had this crazy code that they thought was like secret, but it wasn't. They'd say, uh, uh, the, "You know, the pineapple is ready." So you know, it was like. <laughs> Really, is that the best you can do? So, and you know, you'd sort of laugh about it, go, ah, the pineapple's ready. Ah, oh, there's an IED. But you know, in the back of your mind, you go, oh, that's actually an IED. So, yeah, there was there was threat, and um, yeah, we were very conscious of it. But um, I didn't have anyone that wouldn't go out on patrol or anything like that. It was important to set an example for the Afghans to be consistent and show that we owned the the battle space, not the Taliban, and that we could move whenever we wanted on our terms and not on theirs. Uh, I didn't make mistakes. Like I said, that, that Apple Orchard incident was me being a bit of a smart aleck, I guess, to the local Taliban commander saying, you know, well, if I want to sit in your Apple Orchard, I'll bloody well sit in your Apple Orchard. But then, yeah, Taliban commander sent a couple of hand grenades into the centre of us, which I fortunately didn't, fortunately didn't hurt anyone, but sent a clear message to me that, um, you know, don't get too cocky because unexpected things will happen like that. So looking back on your deployment to Afghanistan now, knowing what's happened since, what do you think the contribution was of the people that you worked there with? Certainly when I was there, we helped local infrastructure as far as putting pumps in, schools and markets were built where earlier they hadn't been, maintain security, improve infrastructure, improve education, improve health outcomes. Yeah, and we certainly did that in our tenure. Things definitely got better. And when you came back to Australia, you then had some more full-time service before you went reserve. So reflecting back now on your army career as a whole, what do you think you've gained from it in terms of that longer term, personal and professional development? I think the army has given me such a, a broad experience. 
of life, whether that's through travel, education, meeting new people in different countries, tremendous opportunities. That shaped me. It's also it's helped me understand how fortunate I am to live where I am and how unfortunate it is for other people in other parts of the world because of political unrest or disease or famine. And you know, I guess it's made me a bit more of a, I'm not sure if globalist is the right word, but there is uh, in society certainly people with so much that should probably be helping people with so little. So that certainly shaped my views of the world and as a broader society, we should look outside our, our own little dome and look to improve the planet as a whole. It sort of pays to put yourself in a situation on the other side of the world to get a, an appreciation of how good you've got it. Yeah, the military's provided great stability for me. It's been a springboard in you know, my sort of my next stage of life as well. So, you know, the skills the military's given me over the years, you know, have helped me find work and continue to find work since I've left. So it's I've really enjoyed my service. And yeah, there have been ups and downs and, you know, good things and bad things I've seen. But um, by and large it's been a really positive experience. So no reservations? Absolutely not. I'd probably do it again. Probably not the hand grenades in the orchard, but yeah, I've, I've just sort of, um, I've just sort of had a really yeah positive experience. I just want to make the point that a lot of us have had a really great time in the military, and it's just we enjoy what we do, and it's a pleasure to keep serving in in whatever ability I have now. And that's a, as a reservist, um, yeah, I'll probably keep doing that until they tell me to get out. Major James O'Hanlon, thank you so much for sharing your story of positivity, energy, and it has to say good humour. Thanks, Sharon. It's been a real pleasure and uh, really enjoyed it. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. Learn more about this podcast and the team behind it at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. We're also on social media. Follow us on Twitter at LOTLpod. Like us on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs> <laughs>